Good? All right. Oh, well. Um, our scripture reading is from Lamentations, and it's chapter 3, verses 19 through 27. All right. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Um, so just a, a couple quick things. If I haven't met you, I'm Brad Dexter. I'm one of our ruling elders here. Um, Eric is still on his honeymoon. Perhaps, maybe he's back. I'm not, I'm not sure if anyone knows that timeline. Um, but we, I, Don, I miss the brother if you didn't say it, but, but no Lord's Supper today. We'll be eager to uh, partake in that again next week. Um, within the PCA, uh, we need a teaching elder present uh, to uh, to uh, administer the Lord's Supper. And I am just a ruling elder. So, um, Lamentations 3, 19 through 27. Familiar piece of scripture. Um, you know, I landed here just because in a lot of, I think in a lot of the things I've been reading lately um, and just kind of what's going around us, Culturally, um, and even as we've started uh, in our life groups going through the the video series that we've been doing, I've been thinking about a, a few different things. And, and I think as we've started engaging um, within our life groups about uh, figuring out how to how to talk to others about Christ while while displaying the character of Jesus, a, a theme that keeps coming up to me and I think that keeps coming up within our life group is kind of this contrast between two perspectives and. One perspective is that, you know, the world has a given order, a uh, given meaning, and so as human beings, we're required to discover that meaning and conform ourselves to it. And the other perspective is this, this uh, perspective that the world is just this raw material uh, out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. And, and those are these, like, contrasting narratives that are happening uh, and are kind of clashing with each other. And uh, I think much of our society believes that second perspective. And to put that more simply, uh, a lot of people believe that, you know, I am my own and I belong to myself. Okay? I think that's the fundamental assumption of a lot of modern life. And the logic that follows is that if we are our own, then it's up to us to forge our own identities and to make our lives significant. But while that may sound empowering, it turns out to be a crushing responsibility one that never actually delivers on its promise of a free and fulfilled life, but instead leaves us burned out, depressed, anxious, and alone. This phenomenon is, is mapped out pretty well onto the very structures of our society and helps explain our society's underlying disorder. Uh, the fruit of this, I think, is, is a lot of mental health uh, issues. And I, just, just looking at some statistics uh, of mental health data in the U.S., in 2019, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, 20% of adults experience a mental illness equivalent to nearly 50 million Americans. Suicidal ideation continues to increase among adults in the U.S. 
A growing percentage of youth in the U.S. live with major depression. In fact, two and a half million youth in the U.S. have severe depression. The percentage of adults with mental illness who report unmet need for treatment has increased every year since 2011. And over 60% of youth with major depression don't receive any mental health treatment. So our society is more lonely, isolated, anxious, and hopeless. So if I think along that perspective that I am my own and I belong to myself, where do I go for a remedy? Uh, I checked out the source that I thought a lot of people would look at, Google. Uh, So here's my synopsis from my extensive review of the top hits from the search question of how do I get hope? What I read was believe in yourself, reflect on past successes, practice meditation, focus on the positive, be creative, find humor, have social support, figure out a clear path, find role models who found situation or solutions to your problems, try mindfulness, do acts of kindness, read positive news, watch motivational videos, chase your dreams, make small progress. Now, I'll admit there's some helpful principles within that list, but the overwhelming message there is do better and try harder. The good news of God's word offers a strikingly different vision than I am my own and belong to myself. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the outworking of this perspective does not mean that will not experience pain or suffering, anxiety or depression or hopelessness. No, these are the result of living in a sin-stained world. However, this perspective drives us to a different remedy. And I want to explore this remedy more through the context of Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 27. So, uh, before we dive into the scripture itself, I wanted to just give a little bit of history and background on, on where we at in scripture. So Lamentations itself was written shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem, um, presumably by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, the later chapters in Lamentations, it could be a community of people that have written uh, some of the poetry there. Jeremiah himself then prophesied during the reigns of the last kings of Judah. Uh, He started in 626 BC, and Josiah, who was considered a good king uh, in the Bible, uh, would have been the king at that time, and he was trying to reform or turn the people of Judah back to God from their idolatrous worship um, that, that they were worshiping. Jeremiah was tasked with a pretty unpopular message. Uh, He was going throughout the land of Israel telling people that Judgment Day was coming, right? And the promised land was going to be lost. God was going to save his people, or at least a remnant of them, through an exile from the promised land. Jeremiah, you might expect, was a pretty lonely guy as God had forbidden him to marry as a sign of, sign of the coming end of normal life. He also found himself opposed to the authorities in the land and to all classes of people. His life was in serious danger time and time and time again. His message placed him in the thick of political events. While much of his prophesying feels pretty doom and gloom, uh, you know, it's not exactly a pick-me-up sort of read. Uh, Jeremiah also had a message of salvation on the other side of exile. So when you get to chapters 30 through 33 of, of his book, Jeremiah, he, he turns to speak of mourning that will turn to joy and a hope for the remnant of Israel that have gone into exile. He even foreshadows a new covenant that will follow a redemption from sin. 
And so that brings us up to Lamentations, where, uh, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem has happened and Jeremiah is still there, but he's not going through the streets saying, see guys, I was right. I was right. You should have listened to me. But instead, what we read in Lamentations is Jeremiah describing the absolute agony he feels at the wrath of God against his people. And although Jeremiah understands the justice of God, this sense of agony and bewilderment of the events that have happened is really strong. He speaks of loneliness, being overtaken by the enemy, seeing leaders and children being ripped away and taken captive. You know, guys like Daniel would fall in that camp, being mocked. Other leaders like priests and elders are lying dead in the street from starvation. And children are suffering and starving all around him. Personally, he speaks of himself and he goes on to describe a weakened condition and considers himself to have little more participation in life than if he were actually dead. So verse 18 in in chapter 3, Jeremiah says, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. He's in this place of, of utter hopelessness. Now, if Jeremiah's perspective was one of, I am my own and I belong to myself, where does he go from here? What's the answer? You know, he's not going to watch a motivational video or have positive thinking that's going to push him out of that. He's in a deep hole. But Jeremiah has a different perspective. And so we pick up in, in verse 19 of chapter 3 and through verse 27, Jeremiah says this. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And so we see Jeremiah here, he turns from hopelessness to hope. Again, not from positive thinking, but from the memory of God's devotion to his people. This experience of rejection by God turns unexpectedly to confidence, Again, not because Jeremiah did better or tried harder, but based on a knowledge of God's character and of God's past mercies. So a few insights from this passage that I wanted to share. First off, in his anguish, Jeremiah is able to affirm that God is still merciful and faithful. So again, verses 19 through 21, "'Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall.'" My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore have hope. So, um, Lamentations, you know, if you, if you read Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 gives you a long list of, of people who in faith believed the promises that God, uh, would, uh, fulfill, right? And Lamentations probably here, perhaps with Abraham, is one of the supreme examples of faith in God within the Old Testament. Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a definite end to the Babylonian exile. You know, even after he's telling people, we're getting kicked out, but 70 years later, we're coming back, right? Lamentations looks for such an end, and it even hopes that Judah's enemies will be judged for their crimes against her. And in this hope, there's an understanding 
of the sovereignty of God over all the nations. Second insight here is just this this hopefulness uh, expressed throughout this part of Lamentations. It's not a hope that comes from within, uh, but rather from drawing on a memory of God's unyielding faithfulness. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hope is rooted not just in God's unyielding faithfulness here, but his steadfast love and his mercy. Kind beyond all measure, God gives pain and pleasure to each day as he deems best, even though we don't always agree enthusiastically with what God deems best for us. Why are his mercies new every morning? Why does God do it that way? It's not because yesterday's mercies were bad or weak. It's because they were yesterday's. Yesterday's mercies were for yesterday's burdens. Today's mercies are for today's burdens. They're new every morning. They're like the manna that God gave in the wilderness. You can't keep it overnight. Enough comes for each day. You live on God day by day or you don't live on God. And my third uh, just insight from this part of Scripture is that Lamentations points beyond the humiliation of Jerusalem to the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And so uh, if we look at uh, Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, you know, the context here is uh, Holy Week. So Jesus has come back into Jerusalem. And uh, here we, we read a lament over Jerusalem from Jesus. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you see, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we hear this lament from Jesus um, in the same way that there's a lament from Jeremiah. And then we also read uh, a little bit uh, later uh, as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, So this is Matthew 26, verse 38. Uh, He says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we also read then of Jesus um, in chapter 27, verse 46. We read of Jesus' humiliation on the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we know the rest of the story because we've just come out of Holy Week and we've walked through uh, Good Friday, the humiliation of Christ, followed by uh, the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. So with this anchor, we can know that God is good and that he'll do good in his time to those who wait for him. In the days before his own cry of abandonment and the mystery of his redemptive suffering, Jesus made his own lament over Jerusalem as we just read. The compassion of his words expresses the goodness and the sovereignty of God that lies in the gospel. So few uh, application 
points that I want to touch on. Uh, seek, hope, and wait. So if we start with seek, uh, you know, Matthew six thirty three says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But what does that look like? I think it's the conscious fixing or focusing of our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God. First Chronicles twenty two nineteen says this. It says, now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And here we learn that there is, there is effort on our part, but that effort is a gift from God. Prayer the reading of God's word and the communion of the saints can all contribute to seeking God. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the heavens are telling the glory of God so we can seek him through that. He reveals himself in his word so we can seek him through that. He shows himself to us in the evidences of grace in other people so we can seek him through that. The seeking is a conscious effort to get through the natural means to God himself, to constantly set our minds toward God in all our experiences, to direct our minds and our hearts toward him through the means of his revelation. That This is what seeking God means. I think we also see in Lamentations 3 here another application of hope. The Bible doesn't just leave us with a picture of reality. It also promises that things will turn out for the best, just not in this lifetime. Even in the midst of the catastrophe that is the fall, God promises humanity a serpent crusher that will crush Satan's head. And soon that promise starts to be fulfilled. From the call of Abraham, rather Abram, in Genesis 12, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of God's own son, Jesus, the ultimate serpent crusher. And so things will turn out for the best. Friends, if we've been reconciled to God through Jesus, things will turn out right for us in the end. But it will only happen when we enter into the fullness of resurrection life, a new creation in the presence of our God and Father forever. And so we don't need to live with empty, rose-colored glasses of worldly optimism or self-helpism, pretending that things are better in this world than they really are. Instead, we can face this world in all its awfulness and grieve, even as we have a secure hope. We will be healed one day of that chronic illness or pain. One day, our wheelchair-bound bodies will rise and walk. Our marital problems will be fixed when all relationships are restored and made whole. Our cancer-ridden bodies will be restored. The problem of aging will be solved. Death itself will be a thing of the past. There will be world peace such as humanity has never known we won't suffer any persecution for our faith. Our own pastor has put it like this. Either way, we'll be all right. Christians shouldn't be blind optimists, thinking that things will more than likely turn out for the best in this world. Although in God's grace, things may well turn out better than we deserve. But as Christians, we should have hope, confidence in our eternal inheritance that will soon be ours. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 say, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, that is worth putting our confidence in. And last application here is wait. And interestingly, I think waiting is probably an expression of the first two applications. Um, Waiting consists of seeking God and having expectant hope. Uh, I love Psalm 40 verses 1 through 3. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And again, verses uh, 25 and 26 from Lamentations 3 say, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So I think there's a seeking, there's a hoping in the waiting. Uh, There's a prayerfulness in the patient waiting on God. We can wait on him in eager anticipation, knowing that he is with us and in control of our lives, and he will do what he has promised. In 1893, at the age of 27, uh, Thomas Chisholm became a Christian at a revival. Uh, He's a guy that lived to the age of about 94, but he struggled with poor health through much of his life. In fact, he served as a minister of a a Methodist church for about a year uh, before he needed to resign due to his health, but uh, it didn't stop his love of writing. In fact, he wrote about 1,200 poems over the course of his lifetime. And one of those poems uh, he submitted to a friend uh, in 1923. William Runyon was his friend, and William was associated with uh, the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, Runyon ended up putting it to music and converted it into the hymn that we know today as Great is Thy Faithfulness, based off of Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. About 20 years later, after it was put to music, a guy by the name of Billy Graham went through Moody Bible Institute and heard this song on the radio. And after beginning his ministry, he had that song sung at many of his evangelistic revival crusades, where it became internationally known and sung within the global church. Verse 3 of Great is Thy Faithfulness reminds us of God's faithfulness revealed in our lives. He pardons all our sins. He fills us with His peace. He assures us of His presence. He gives us strength, hope, and blessings too numerous to count. Friends, whatever challenges, trials, or disappointments you might be facing right now, this hymn reminds us that God's promises are true, that He never changes, his compassions never fail, that his faithful not, faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus is unwavering. You belong to him. Your story is bound up in his great story. And that's a God we're seeking after, hoping in, and waiting for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the way uh, this passage of scripture has uh, been a beacon of of light and hope to many of us in the midst of great sorrow or loss or uncertainty, anxiety within our lives. 
Lord, we, we can't fix the sin problem that we have. We can't fix the weight, the weightiness of, of the problems that are going on around us, Lord, but we can seek you. We can hope. We have a secure hope in Christ Jesus. Lord, you've defeated this sin problem that you set out to crush from the very beginning. You did it through Jesus. Our hope is in him. I pray that you would help us to to seek, to hope, and to wait on you, Lord. We love you and just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.